Hey, future doctors. Thanks for joining me on Spoonful of Sugar, a podcast made for medical students by medical students to help the medicine go down. My name is Ria Moherker. I'm currently a fourth year radiation oncology resident in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and I will be your host today. Welcome back to Spoonful of Sugar. In today's episode, What Every Medical Student Should Know About Ophthalmology, I'm very excited to have my friend from medical school, Dr. Will Foos, um, as a guest. Will and I actually graduated the same year from Drexel University College of Medicine. We graduated in 2020, and currently Will is a PGY-4 ophthalmology resident. Um, he is in his last year, will be graduating this summer, and is going to go on to do a fellowship in pediatric ophthalmology. Um, he also actually has a super entertaining TikTok account called Ophthalmation, um, which those of you on TikTok should definitely check out for some fun optho and just medical-related humor. Today's episode is structured a little bit differently than what we normally do here on the podcast, um, but last season I recorded a similar episode called What Every Medical Student Should Know About Radiation Oncology, and I got really positive feedback. So I thought of starting to bring in some folks from other specialties as well to help all of us learn a little bit more about different niches within medicine, even if it's not an area that we're directly pursuing. Um, the goal of this episode is really to introduce the basics of ophthalmology to anyone that might even peripherally interact with an ophthalmologist throughout their career. Um, and at the very end, uh, we will end with some career advice for those of you out there who might actually want to specialize in ophthalmology. Um, I really do think, though, that no matter what field you go into, it's really valuable to get some perspective on what other doctors are, what their days are like, what kinds of things they're seeing, and any um, you know words of wisdom they may have about conditions that they see every single day. Um, so with that short little introduction, let's get into the interview, and I hope you find this helpful. Hey, Will, how are you doing? I'm doing great. How are you, Ria? I'm good. Hanging in there. Um, well, I just wanted to say thank you so much for um, being back on the show. Um, just for our listeners, Will was actually the very first guest to host an episode on Spoonful of Sugar um, back in season one. He hosted a handful of episodes on the anatomy and physiology of the eye, neuro-ophthalmology, and ocular pathology, which you guys should definitely check out if you're interested. And then now as we're starting to get more into specialty-specific episodes on the podcast, I thought it was only fitting that I have him on as my first resident guest to tell you guys more about the field now that he's four years in. Um, so, Will, can you tell us a little bit about how you got interested in ophthalmology? Um, yeah. So um, I think a lot of this kind of goes back to um, having my mom as sort of like a, a role model. She was an OBGYN. So my impression of medicine was always um, a doctor who did surgery in addition to medicine. Um, and then I always really liked Derm, kind of the uh, Dr. Pimple Popper sort of stuff um, growing up. And then when I got to med school, I realized I really like neurology as well. Um, and as I was exploring different options, I felt like uh, ophthalmology was the best combination of where the skin uh, meets the brain. And I found, you know, the surgical ratio was pretty great. There is a very, you know, specialized knowledge set. Um, and it's kind of a way to like specialize while, while still doing a little bit of everything. Um, so that's why it was a perfect fit for me. 
Awesome. And I hear you're um, going to be moving back to Philly for fellowship. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about what kind of fellowship you're doing and why you chose that? Yeah, I'm uh, doing a pediatric ophthalmology fellowship. Uh, and I think kind of along the same lines is what I said why I went into ophthalmology. Um, I really like that the pediatric um, fellowship, you, you still kind of do a little bit of everything. Uh, ophthalmology has a tendency to be very subspecialized. Um, so pediatric ophthalmologists, their bread and butter kind of becomes, you know, eye muscle surgery and strabismus, uh, but they still do cataracts for kids. Um, some can still practice comprehensive ophthalmology uh, outpatient and see kids as well. Uh, some do glaucoma, they do some retina stuff, some mild oculoplastic stuff. So I think that's why I really liked it. Plus, um, kids are fun and you get to see a lot of the, the weird stuff that you only really read about in uh, textbooks. Yeah. That's super awesome. You're going to make a great pediatric ophthalmologist. Um, I think it's super cool that in addition to being an ophthal resident, you also have a pretty popular TikTok account um, sharing some medical knowledge. Um, I follow you and your videos are always spot on and hilarious. Um, can you tell us like how that got started? Um, yeah. So, I mean, I, I would say COVID and boredom. Uh, you know, we graduated <laughs> from medical school right as the pandemic started. And um, I went out to live with my parents for a couple months at the end of um uh, rotations and I just had a lot of free time. So I started a, a non-medical uh, TikTok account. Um, and then I realized I kind of wanted to curate a different account that had more medical content. Um, and then I just kind of thought of funny moments that um, were applicable, particularly in intern year to how I thought about um, interactions in the um, with other providers or with patients and sort of um, little movie quotes and stuff that would pop into my head that seemed uh, relevant to those. That's awesome. Yeah, everyone needs a little bit of medical humor to make the job a little less stressful. Oh, um, what's your favorite part about the specialty you've chosen? Ooh, that's um, really hard because I think so many of the individual components are really great. I think it's, it's probably a tie between, you know, um, the continuity and relationships you get with patients, especially after um, you do a surgery that really impacts their quality of life. Um, and then I think also just how sort of specialized the, the, uh, the area is in terms of technology and sort of a protected knowledge that a lot of other um, uh, specialties don't really have access to. So you kind of become the go-to expert on, uh, on the eye, yeah. Gotcha, yeah. For me in medical school, the eye definitely scared me a lot. Um, and it still scares me a lot. <laughs> it freaks me out a little. Um, and that's really why I wanted to do this episode. Um, it's meant to kind of be like an education for all comers um, and not just anyone that might be going into optho, but anyone that might peripherally interact with ophthalmologists in the course of their career. So I wanted to start off with just some very general questions about the field kind of for everyone. And then um, for those medical students who are really interested in opto, I'll ask some kind of career advice type questions at the end. Um, so first off, I was wondering if you can talk just a little bit about kind of the bread and butter of ophthalmology and um, just like if there are general practitioners within the field and what their practices might look like. Yeah, I would say um, 
general ophthalmology usually we say is comprehensive. There's a lot of subspecialty fellowships that will practice comprehensive in addition to their subspecialty. Um, and also depending on the subspecialty, the bread and butter does change. But for a comprehensive ophthalmologist, really the bread and butter are gonna be cataracts, doing surgery and evaluating those. Um, additionally, you'll be doing sort of some basic um, you know, screening and exams for diabetes, glaucoma, um, you know, retinal problems. You can see dry eyes, some small eyelid procedures you might do and some laser procedures. And of course, you know, refractions, giving glasses. Um, ophthalmologists do that in addition to optometrists. Um, we don't necessarily like to do it as much, but certainly that does kind of become part of the bread and butter. But in terms of the, the bread and butter surgery, it's going to be cataracts and that's going to be a fair amount of uh, what you see in clinic. Gotcha. That's super helpful. Um, and then you mentioned, you know, you're going into um, pediatric ophthalmology, but what are some of the other kind of most common fellowships that there are to pursue an ophtho and how long are those typically? Yeah, most fellowships are about a year. Uh, some of the more specialized surgical ones can be two years. Um, mm -hmm. And then there's a couple that are, um, you know, even a little more niche, even for ophthalmology. But the big ones are usually retina, um, which surgically would be a two-year fellowship, but you can also do a one-year um, medical retina fellowship. Um, glaucoma, cornea, oculoplastics, which uh, is usually two years. Um, there is refractive surgery. That's things like LASIK and um, um, PRK or um, can also be specialized um, specialized cataract surgery that's aiming to get people completely free of glasses. Um, and then neuro-ophthalmology. Um, and there's pediatrics like myself, and then there's a couple more niche ones like uh, ocular pathology, uveitis, uh, ocular oncology, and um, mm -hmm. global ophthalmology. Gotcha, that's super helpful. Um, and I guess in if you were to be like a general ophthalmologist, um, can you give a sense of what the general schedule might be like um, and how most attendings split their time between clinic and the OR? Yeah, so like you said, most of it is clinic, it's outpatient um, setting, um, unless you're in an academic uh, program or you kind of, uh, you're with a, a group that takes call at a hospital, usually um, you're outpatient. Um, surgery will be, you know, one to two days per week. Usually um, it might be a half day and then you're in clinic. The other days per week um, could be three to four days, sometimes half days. Um, and then you might have those clinics kind of further subspecialized if you have a pre-op or a post-op clinic, depending upon uh, how it runs and maybe a day for lasers and minor procedures um, as well. Gotcha. So it seems like a really good balance between like clinic and OR. And it seems like, I guess, can you give a sense of what the hours are like and how busy um, ophthalmologists are when on call and things like that? Yeah. Um, so, I mean, hours, it's going to, you know, depend on the particular institution. Um, it's, it's, it's very much like a nine to five job in that sense. Uh, most people will do probably eight o'clock start for clinic and then their last patient will probably be scheduled at 3.30. So they'll be done mm -hmm. by four, 4.30. Um, some clinics start a little earlier, some start, you know, go a little later. Some clinicians like to have, um, you know, Saturday or Sunday and, or like to have half days. 
um, you know, probably roughly the the 40 hour work week now. Normally those are pretty packed. You know, you're seeing a lot of patients and average uh, comprehensive ophthalmologist is probably seeing anywhere from 20 to 50 patients a day, depending on how busy they are. Um, mm -hmm. There are some right now doctors who see, you know, 35 to 70 patients a day. So oh, wow. it can be, um, so, I mean, when you're done, there's usually not much you have to do when you, when you get home. Um, you know, if you're on call, uh, depending on how the, the call is set up, um, oftentimes you can triage most ocular problems to the morning. And if you have a private practice, you can say, hey, we'll see you first thing in the morning. Um, it's a little different for residency programs. And if the hospital has a consult service, uh, you might be seeing them in the middle of the night. But for the most part, mo there's very few things that can't, uh, their definitive treatment can't, uh, can be put off till the next day usually. Gotcha. So since you mentioned kind of the inpatient side and whether or not there's a consult service, um, how are the inpatients typically handled and what are some of the most common inpatient consults you guys would see? Yeah, let me, I think I had this in here. So, so inpatients, um, I think, uh, once again, it depends on where you're at. I'm kind of speaking from a residency perspective where, um, you know, you're expected to, to cover inpatient consults and also in the emergency department. So probably a, a higher proportion of um, problems are coming from the emergency department because um, there's not a lot of things that patients tend to get admitted for. Um, and, mm -hmm. you know, if someone were consulted on the floor, it's more um, kind of an acute change. Um, a lot of the disease processes can kind of be grouped into things that are neurological, vascular, infectious, traumatic, or autoimmune in terms of what, you know, we're seeing. Uh, and most of the time, our initial evaluation is enough. And then we kind of, you know, give our recommendations for inpatient and then they, uh, and then we, you know, want them to follow up outpatient if there's a more definitive treatment there. There's a few exceptions with things we might go and see daily if it's, you know, something we had to do surgery on, if they had um, like a um, orbital cellulitis or some, some corneal ulcers, um, we need to see daily to make sure they're getting better. But, you know, for instance, uh, typical consults we might get, we'll get disc edema consults or people will say papal edema. Um, there's a lot of different ways you can bleed in the eye. So often stuff like that, um, vascular diseases, whether it's like an ocular ischemia, central retinal vein occlusion, artery occlusion, lots of strokes, um, infectious pro problems like orbital cellulitis, abscesses, corneal ulcers. A lot of trauma in the emergency department, open globes, floor fractures, um, and then some, some uveitis. And then, you know, amidst all this, we're going to get a lot of um, consults that end up being just dry eye problems. Gotcha. Makes sense. Could be kind of a, a variety of things, it sounds like, and a variety of um, severity. Um, this is a question that I'm, like, thinking of right now on the spot. But can you talk a little bit about what your exam is like like let's say you're evaluating a uh, inpatient and you're consulted for some trauma related to the eye other than like what we all learn in medical school like looking at pupils and um, extraocular movements um, can you talk just a little bit more about what what you would be examining for and how you'd go about it yeah um, so I kind of have like an algorithm that I go through um, and I think it's um, 
really good to, there's this uh, resource called like timroot.com and he kind of goes through this very well in a way that's digestible for a medical student. Um, but I kind of start out with sort of vitals um, the, for the eye vitals are a little different than, you know, blood pressure and stuff. So we'll check visual acuity. That's, you know, reading um, the Snellen chart or a, a near card if we have that. Um, we'll check the intraocular pressure um, and then the, the pupils, obviously, we'll, we'll look at that. We'll look at the extraocular motility and their visual field. That's usually the, the big uh, five vitals that we look at first. Um, and then if we have a slit lamp on hand, we'll do an anterior segmented exam, look at the cornea, the, um, the um, uh, sorry, I was getting a call. Um, we'll look at the cornea, the iris, the, um, the pupil, you know, the lids, the lashes, make sure there's nothing obviously wrong with that. And then we'll dilate the patient and we'll look at the fundus. So we'll look at the retina, we'll look at the optic nerve, the vessels and all of that. Um, and then if all of that doesn't really help us out, um, then we'll um, usually uh, kind of ask for neurologic imaging or orbital imaging. Yeah. Gotcha. Thank you. That's super helpful. And what was that resource you mentioned that's good for medical students, the website? Um, yeah, it's called timroot.com. He has this thing called OptoBook, um, which you can buy if you like a physical copy, but the, it's actually free online, the, the PDF. Um, and he explains things very well. It was kind of the Bible when I was doing a wave rotations. Oh, awesome. That's super helpful for our students, probably. So timroot.com, you said? Yeah. Cool. Um, one question that I always have for like every specialty, because I know I have my pet peeves within my specialty, um, but do you ever get consults that you see and you feel like they probably weren't necessary or you wish that they had been handled differently? Like you wish you got it earlier or later or not at all. <laughs> um. So so most of the things are you know not at all because a lot of what we do is outpatient. Um. So I think you know I think there are appropriate consults. I think when whenever we can kind of divide ophthalmic complaints into four categories. One being you know there's a problem with vision. The patient's seeing something or not seeing something that they should be. Um, then there's sensation, my eye hurts, it feels gritty, whatever. Then there's discharge. Uh, and then there's the WTF is that, which is, you know, the eye just looks awful. You know, it's mm -hmm. popping out, they're not facing the same way. Um, and I, I, I tend to take, you know, complaints of vision if it's not just a generic, like, oh, my vision's blurry. Um, but if a, if a patient is, you know, pretty adamant that their vision is changing and stuff, um, I usually take those pretty seriously. I think that's, you know, a pretty appropriate consult. Same with the the WTF is that category. If the eyes um, just don't look right, I think that's appropriate. I think a lot of, you know, things that are like sensation-based eye pain are usually, uh, it's usually dry eye. And especially in the inpatient setting, it's usually patients who are on respirators or they've been in the ICU with their eyes open the whole time and it's mm -hmm. just drying out. And that's really what it is. Um, so I, I think it's really important for consults to, to establish the acuity of the problem, because once again, if it's, it's a chronic problem, it can be managed at the patient. Um, so we need to know, you know, is this a new finding? Um, and then my, my pet peeve consults that uh, I will like die on a hill for are the, the papilledema consults and the, um, <laughs> the fungal endophthalmitis consults. So um, for, um, for papilledema, I, I, this is the, the hill I'll die on. It's just 
the definition of papilla edema means optic nerve swelling that is uh, attributed to elevated intracranial pressure. So if you ask for a consult for papilla edema, by definition, you are saying you are concerned about elevated intracranial pressure. So the, the eye exam can tell you if the nerve is swollen, but that has, um, you know, the nerve can be swollen with elevated intracranial pressure. It can be swollen without in elevated intracranial pressure. Um, it doesn't really provide much diagnostic uh, use if you're already suspicious for that. Really the best diagnostic thing is to get head imaging and to get a lumbar puncture. Um, mm -hmm. So most of the time I find those consults like that I'm, I'm not really contributing much to, to the patient's care. Um, and there might be some mild prognostic value, but it's it's not very diagnostic. And I feel like the, the people who put those consoles don't quite understand that oftentimes. Um, and then fungal endophthalmitis, um, just there's been some studies recently that um, if a patient is conscious and they can, you know, tell you if they have visual symptoms, um, then and they don't have visual symptoms, it's less than a 1% chance that a fungemia will cause endophthalmitis. Um, mm -hmm. So that's usually um, pretty pretty low yield. Obviously, that kind of breaks down for people in the ICU. Um, also, I really don't like uveitis rule outs uh, when a patient is asymptomatic also. And hallucinations are almost never an eye problem. So um, <laughs> that is all. <well. laughs> Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, I'm sure by now you've kind of gotten gotten it all in terms of the consults, um, but that mm -hmm. is super helpful. Um, so thank you for kind of sharing that. Um, is there anything that you see in the hospital sometimes that you're like, wow, I actually wish I had been consulted sooner about this? Um, I know you mentioned like acute visual changes and things like that. Um, yeah, I would say like, acute visual changes. Um, there's a few real um, you know, ocular emergencies, we all kind of hear about acute angle closure glaucoma, um, which is actually pretty rare, but certainly if it was legitimate, we would want to be there to intervene very soon because patients can lose vision very fast. Um, and same with any patients with, um, you know, retinal detachments or even um, the um, an orbital compartment syndrome. Some patients, if they have trauma and bleeding behind their eye, it can lead to a compartment syndrome and patients can lose vision very quickly if they don't have, um, you know, emergent intervention um, with a canthotomy to release pressure. Um, certainly that's something that um, emergency room providers should be trained to do and same with trauma providers. So mm -hmm. uh, that's, I, I, I definitely think ophthalmologists are more comfortable with it than than they are, but oftentimes we're not in a place to come as emergently as is as is needed. So mm -hmm. I think communicating how emergent that is, how how high the suspicion is for an orbital compartment syndrome, if um, there's that, is really um, really important to you know preserve vision as best as possible. Okay, gotcha. And so this is super outside of my wheelhouse now, um, and I'm sorry for my ignorance, but can you just educate us a little bit on like how orbital compartment syndrome would present and like what the red flag signs are um, yeah. that, that um, should be conveyed? Yeah, so, um, you know, we're, we're looking for the, the orbit is a compartment. Um, you have the bony walls and then you have the septum. Uh, which is sort of like a, a fascial plane on the front of the eye. 
Um, and so you kind of have to cut the eyelids uh, in that fascial plane anteriorly to relieve pressure. So um, in an orbital compartment syndrome, someone would have, uh, you know, bleeding or something creating pressure behind the eye as pushing forward and ch choking off blood flow to the optic nerve and to the retina. Um, mm. So um, the way we assess it is, uh, one, we're looking for, um, you know, proptosis. The eye might be popping out which is a you know, pretty obvious cause. And then the eyelids will be really tight. Um, we, we check pressure, which is something, you know, I don't expect every physician to be able to do, but certainly emergency room doctors should be able to check the eye pressure. If the pressure is really high and the eye is proptotic, that's a good sign that, you know, um, and there's pressure on everything there. Um, and then if you can't push the eye back into the socket, if you put some pressure on it and it's just hard, it's not, you know, bouncing back. Um, that's another sign. Um, if the pupil is not reacting, if you shine a light, um, especially if you look at it compared to the other eye and you do a, a relative afferent pupillary defect, that's where you know you move it to the, the eye that's not swollen and um, the pupil constricts, and then you move it to the eye that's swollen and the eye either dilates or doesn't constrict. Um, that's that's a sign that you know the optic nerve has been compromised. And certainly if they have vision loss with that, um, that's also you know a very you know bad sign. Um, mm -hmm. So kind of assessing all those together. And then there's, um, you know, a lot of these patients will have CT scans and you can see if, you know, um, if any of those bones in the orbit are broken, that might be a, a good sign because, you know, there might be decreased pressure um, on uh, the eye, but then you have to worry about other things. Um, and then also um, you can see sometimes tenting of the globe because everything's pushing it forward. The optic nerve is kind of pulling it back. Uh, so mm -hmm. it doesn't look like a perfect sphere. It'll kind of be tented. You'll have a little triangle in the back of it. So um, those are all signs that, you know, hey, this probably has an orbital compartment syndrome and it's, you know, it's very emergent. Gotcha. Well, that sounds terrifying. And thank you for um, for for teaching me about that. Um, it's I'm hopeful that our emergency room colleagues are much better prepared than I to handle that type of a situation. Yeah, I mean, it's not something you should ever be seeing on the floor. Um, the only time you might see it is if a patient falls and they're on blood thinners and hits their head. But that, mm. that's really about it. Yeah. Gotcha. Well, thank you. This was all um, very helpful. And I feel like we've been able to give a good overview um, just for people that are interested in learning a little bit more about ophthalmology as a field, especially for first and second year students who probably don't have a lot of exposure to it. Um, is there anything else that you want to share that you wish every single medical student knew about ophthalmology? Um, well, I just, I think it, um, you know, has all the best parts of, um, you know, all the other subspecialties and specialties that I like without any of the, the bad parts, in my opinion. Um, and I know that it's, um, it can seem very intimidating dealing with the eye, but it is something you gradually learn and become comfortable with uh, the more you're around it. So, um, you know, kind of trust the process if it's something you think you might be interested in. And uh, certainly, you know, it's it's not all just cataracts and LASIK and, you know, um, giving glasses prescriptions. If um, that wasn't really what drew me to it in the first place, I was more interested in the medical side of things, seeing how strokes impacted the eyes and such, and just, you know, looking at the retina and seeing cool stuff like that. But even the stuff that initially seems, you know, kind of bread and butter and maybe a little boring, cataracts, LASIK, glasses, 
a glaucoma, you know, as you get to know it more and more, it becomes more interesting and, you know, you can dive really deep into, you know, pretty much any disease or anything in, in uh, ophthalmology. It's pretty great. Awesome. Thank you. Um, so just a couple of questions at the end for if anyone's sticking around listening who might actually be interested in going into optho. Um, can you just talk a little bit about the length of residency? I know you mentioned fellowship is typically one to two years, um, but if you can just talk about how long residency is and how common it is to do fellowship and how hard it is and things like that. Yeah, um, residency um, is, you know, you do one year of internship. Um, now all the programs are pretty much integrated. So uh, wherever you match for ophthalmology is where you'll do your internship. Um, each program has their internship set up a little different. It might be three to six months of ophthalmology during that. Uh, some are more surgical, some are more medical. Um, and then after that one year, you do three years of residency. Um, and then uh, you don't have to do fellowship. Certainly there's a, a very high demand for comprehensive ophthalmologists everywhere. Um, but some people like to, if they want to develop, you know, certain skill sets, be able to do retina surgery or, um, you know, corneal transplants or something like that. Um, and certainly it does make you more marketable for more um, competitive markets, you know, like in cities and stuff, or if you want to do academics. And certainly, you know, um, there are some fellowships that are pretty competitive, like oculoplastics and surgical retina, but a lot of other ones, um, you know, at, at th that kind of cutoff, it's not too competitive. And a lot of people um, get a pretty good choice if in terms of their where they want to go in, in terms of that. Gotcha. And if I recall for residency, OPSO is a separate match than the NRMP match, right? Yeah, yeah. So same with the, the fellowship match. Um, it's through the San Francisco match. Um, mm -hmm. So that's um, how, how you go about it. And it's the, the same San Francisco match for fellowship as well. And I think it, it starts a little bit earlier too. I think um, it becomes live either July, August. And um, actually, I think next week is when uh, they announce the um, first week of February currently. But yeah, next week the, is when they announce, um, you know, uh, the, the match. So good luck to people who are matching. <laughs> gotcha. Yeah, good luck. I, yeah, I remember that in med school, like all the off the people found out before. I think urology does a different match as well. Um, where they find out a little bit earlier. But that's good to know that they also, the application process starts earlier as well in the summer. Um, do you have any advice for uh, students who are potentially thinking about going into opto? Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I can say with like pretty much every subspecialty that, you know, if you find yourself torn between a couple, like why ophthalmology has like the best part of that. So, uh, I mean, like, I just kind of wrote down a couple of them when I was looking at your questions beforehand, but like for peds, you can still see kids. For neuro, you know, most of the brain actually goes to the um, processing vision and, you know, motor function for the eyes, you know, surgery, you get to do surgery and you don't have to do a surgical residency that's super long and grueling. You don't have to live in the hospital and you can, you know, sit down for your surgeries. You still get all the gross skin stuff on the eyelids and stuff that you like in derm. Um, radiology, there's, you, we have our own imaging. We have like OCTs that can image the retina really well and angiography for that. And you also get really good with um, maxillofacial imaging. Uh, for you, uh, you know, 
liking oncology and doing radiation oncology. There's lots <laughs> of ocular cancer um, as a subspecialty, and we get to play with lasers a lot too. Um, they're not all for cancer, but the lasers are very fun. Um, <laughs> anesthesia, you get to do blocks without having to memorize all the, the pharmacology. Like um, most of our pharmacology is summed up in, um, you, if you remember like the color of the, the bottle caps, like you know exactly what they do and exactly what medication the patient is talking about. Um, you'll spend a lot of time in the ER if you do a residency. So um, if you like ER, there's that like OBGYN, I was saying it's surgical and medical, you know, you don't get too messy with bodily fluids, uh, not too many emergencies. There's lots of uh, entrepreneurship uh, opportunities because there's a lot of technology in this and, you know, uh, pharmacologic uh, research in the space that's going around and even in imaging, um, lots of demand and flexibility. And, you know, ophthalmologists generally are pretty nice because, you know, they have, um, um, a good work-life balance with everything and you get really good continuity of care with patients and have a meaningful impact on their quality of life and um, most of the time you don't have to deal with them dying as much either so um, I think that's all really really some of the great things about ophthalmology um, the one thing that kind of is a little bit of a bummer is because it's kind of so specialized it's a little isolated from um, you know other specialties especially when you're out practicing so um, but you know, you can make the the effort to see your friends in the hospital as well um, and in their other specialties and such. So, yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. I personally like to hang out with my friends outside of the hospital more. So. Yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, but yeah, that sounds awesome. I think like Radong also sounds like it's really the best of both worlds when it comes to like medicine and surgery, which is kind of the, the big decision that students have to make. Um, for any students that are potentially going to do an away rotation in ophthalmology or just a dedicated off the rotation, do you have any um, specific advice in terms of how to prepare for the rotation? Um, the Tim Root book that I talked about earlier, okay. um, I think if you read that like cover to cover, that's um, really great. I think, you know, um, when you're a med student, there's not a ton you can do. Um, in terms of like physical exams and, um, you know, to contribute to patient care. So I think, you know, genuine interest really goes a long way. Um, mm -hmm. Certainly if you, uh, there, we have a lot of applicants who have been, you know, text beforehand um, or, you know, um, if they've had their home rotation first and, you know, you got some experience in terms of um, taking eye pressure and, and stuff. I think that definitely, if, if you are able to make yourself useful, that's really helpful, but certainly, we don't necessarily expect med students to do that. Um, and then I think, um, you know, uh, it's a really small field. Um, I think after a certain point, you know, uh, when we were applying, um, there was a big emphasis placed on step one scores and, you know, research and stuff. And while it is very important to, to do well on those, and um, I think after a certain point, there is a diminishing return on in terms of how many research publications you do or whatever step score you get. I think at that level, it's it's about the connections you make. And so you wanna um, kind of gear your whole ways towards um, you know uh, places where you think you can make a good connection and make a good impression. Um, and certainly, you know, geography demonstrating interest um, in a geographic location is, you know, very, very important because that will you know, determine how um, your interviews go. Yeah. 
Awesome. Yeah. And I totally agree with that from my experience working with med students. I think just showing genuine interest and interest in connecting with people and interest in the field, that goes a really, really long way. Um, mm -hmm. So, well, thank you so much, Will. This was all um, super helpful. I think our med students will really appreciate it. And just thanks for taking the time to share some of your advice. My pleasure. It's great to see you again, Rhea.